there's lots of bits of the Bible that um, I eat, but do I digest any of them? And so for me, the challenge is just to slow down and go over again things I learned, you know, in passing I understood it, but have I been through it with my Heavenly Father personally? Welcome to the Keswick Convention Podcast. I'm James Carey, your host for this episode, and my guest is pastor, teacher and author, Reverend Dr. Andrew Satch. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, James. So do you want to start by saying how uh, you spend your working days in ministry? Yeah, I've got two jobs. So part of the time, I'm a pastor at Grace Church Greenwich, which is a church plant in South East London, about five years old. And the other half of my time, I'm a tutor on the Cornhill training course, which is a, a course to try and help people understand the Bible and communicate the Bible. So what sort of people are signing up for the Cornhill training course? It's actually a huge variety. So some people do it because they take early retirement and have more time to give their church. Other people are fresh out of university and pretty much everything in between. Because it's part time, so you can do the first couple of years of it just one day a week. Some people have managed to go down to a part time working week and fit it alongside jobs. And so we all all kinds of people. Excellent. Great. Well, we'll we'll revisit that in due course. But let's go back to your origin story, uh, if I can call it that. Uh, Where did you hear God's word for the first time? What does your journey to faith look like? I started going to church actually because I was into music and my piano teacher was in the local church choir and she she suggested age nine that I joined it. So with a very squeaky high pitched voice and wearing a little frilly collar, I was in a church choir for several years. And church for me, I guess, was more about the tradition and the ritual. I didn't know Jesus personally and I didn't hear um, him really clearly taught there. Probably the first time I heard the gospel clearly was on an aeroplane. So my um, my father was living in Singapore when I was in my later teens. And me and my sister went to spend the summer holidays with him. And we sat next to a lady who was a very earnest Christian. And it was, I don't know, a 14-hour flight or something. And my sister immediately fell asleep for the entire journey. And I was left talking to this earnest Christian. And I was, you know, I was brought up to be polite. So I wasn't interested at all, but I didn't want to be rude. So... She ended up talking to me at length about Jesus, and I, I wasn't really interested, but I pretended to be. And then... Whilst your sister pretended to be a sister. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, the year after, was at university, I became a Christian, and I actually, I had her address, the lady from the plane, and she was Australian, and I wrote to her and told her I've actually come to faith, and she was, you know, delighted. I guess she probably faithfully prayed for me, and at that stage, you know, had no idea how it would turn out. So. But yeah, um, the, the crunch came. I went to university, um, and... I met some Christians who didn't fit my stereotype of religious people. So, you know, I was in a church choir from nine. By late teens, I was getting pretty cynical about church. Um, I was studying sciences. I was reading Richard Dawkins. I was reading newspaper headlines about vicars embezzling funds and running off with the organist's wife and so on. And I was very dismissive of it all. And then I met Christians at Cambridge who didn't fit my stereotype because they had integrity and they really lived out what they said they believed. And they also had reasons why they believed it. So I just, you know, I assumed that people were religious because they'd grown up religious. And I met people who knew what they believed and why, and it turned out there was a basis for it. So all of that was a huge shock to me. Um, For example, and this is such an obvious thing, it's crazy I didn't understand it, but they told me for the first time, I think, or at least I realised for the first time, that Jesus was a historical person. I mean, this is obvious, but somehow 
for me, he'd always been a figure in a stained glass window in a slightly fairy tale world. And I realised that if he was in history, then there was an objectivity to it. Like either he rose from the dead or he didn't. And either he turned water into wine or he didn't. I mean, it was a, it was a true or false thing, not a are you into religion thing. Um, and I started, basically, I started to become convinced it was true. I looked into it, I was very sceptical, and I thought, this, this is really true, this really happened. But I didn't want it to be true. So there's sort of two stages of my conversion. The first was getting convinced, and the second one was running away as hard as I could, because I thought, this will wreck my life. And mm. again, that was illogical, because it hadn't wrecked my Christian friend's life. Um, and, but for me, the, the big question was not just, is Jesus true, but is he good? Can I trust him? Because to, to say to him, here, here are the reins to my life. Here, you can be in control of what I do. That was a pretty frightening decision. And I, I remember re- realising, you know, if Jesus came to die on a cross so that I could be forgiven, that isn't the kind of thing you do to somebody, for somebody if you hate them and want to destroy them. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's so obvious, but that was really the sticking point. Can I trust him? Is he good? Mm-hmm. And these are all things that you'd presumably not only been hearing, at least, in the choir, but singing as well. It's sort of rather amazing, our capacity to delude ourselves or not pay attention. Uh, it's, it's astonishing, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, it, like even Christmas carols, I mean, they are so explicit, aren't they? Hark the Herald Angels Sing, um, Glory to the Newborn King. I mean, that, it's got the whole gospel in there born to give a second birth, you know, being born again. I mean, everything's in Heart the Herald Angels Sing, but I, I must have sung it, you know. I was in, at Christmas, we did endless carol services, never mm. paid attention to any of the words. So there was a kind of delight about being a new Christian and going back over the things, the words that you knew and suddenly realising what they mean. You talked about the fact that you didn't really want this to be true because you maybe had other plans. You'd gone in a science direction. I, re- I read from your church's website that your background in science began with an explosives factory in your parents' garage, age 15, and then ended with a PhD on why two ears are better than one. So, you know, this is, this is a science, science man here I'm talking to. Both, both of those things are true. They describe it as an explosives factory nowadays. It's the kind of thing that puts you on an MI5 watch list. But... Yes, well, it is on the internet, so you might want to take another look at that. <laughs> there was my, um, my stepfather's a scientist as well, and he, descri- he used to tell us about this chemical he made when he was a teenager called nitrogen triiodide um it's explosive on touch so you wait for it to dry you spread it on a windowsill you wait for the cat that kind of thing and we just thought this sounded amazing and i was desperate to make it as a teenager but it's really hard to buy iodine i'm pleased to hear that (laughs) it's a registered poison and so on so but anyway eventually my opportunity came when i went to singapore to see my father i don't know if it was the same trip as i met that lady on the plane maybe but anyway i bought some iodine i made some of my dad's bathroom and I didn't realise that it is actually quite effective and quite explosive so was that an expensive mistake there was no expense involved but there was possible eardrum damage well and that takes us on to the PhD on why two ears are better than one is that was that inspired by that (laughs) not directly but um my hearing was quite good as a 21 year old I don't know what it's like now yeah so I did so I did research on neuroscience so how the brain processes the signals from the ears and it's Amazing. I mean, one of the great things as a Christian studying the brain is it is phenomenally brilliant. And, you know, we understand so little about it, but what we do understand, you, you marvel at it. So you, we can detect a difference in arrival time between the ears of 10 millionths of a second. So that's one of the ways we locate sounds. If a sound's on your left, it gets to your left ear before your right ear. 
and you can detect an asynchrony of just 10 millionths of a second. And that, I mean, that is amazing. But there's all these kind of mechanisms exist in the in the brain to do that. So that was my research for three years, really quite a long time ago. And uh, you ended up in ministry. So at some point, maybe God came knocking again and suggested uh, an alternative route. Uh, we very much a here I am, send me or an oh Lord, send someone else. The big change was to become a Christian and to be a servant of Jesus. And I think every servant of Jesus is called to be a full time servant of Jesus. So um, that was the big change. Um, I think then the question is just how do I best serve him? I'd had the opportunity at university in Cambridge to be taught very clearly from the Bible. I went to a great church. The Christian Union was very active. And I think I just assumed that everyone had that chance. Um, and I discovered a bit later that there's lots of places where there isn't a very clear ministry or where um, there's just a need for people to go into Bible teaching. I mean, in, in Cambridge, I was probably, I don't know, the 300th in the queue. You know, there's lots of people more gifted than me and, and more mature than me in the faith. But then I, I realised that actually there is, the harvest is, is white and there's, there's a need across the country and across the world for many, many more pastor teachers. So I probably didn't realise that until a bit later. And then when I did realise it, I thought, well, can I give it a go? And not will I be, you know, I had these great heroes, you know, Mark Ashton in Cambridge is a great hero of mine and um, and others, Dick Lucas. And, you know, it wasn't, can I be the next Dick Lucas? It is, can I be faithful? Because if I can be faithful and I've got some aptitude for teaching, then we need more faithful teachers in the country. So... That sort of lowered the bar about, I suppose, um, or at least it changed where the bar was. It was a faithfulness bar rather than a brilliance bar. And I, during my PhD, I actually had the opportunity to start doing some Christian ministry. My church in York was very kind in letting me do some preaching and let me run some student work. And by the end of it, I was probably doing more Christian work than PhD work. I was, I was really fortunate because most of my experiments worked and so my PhD didn't take that long. And that just gave me a lot of time to do ministry. I mean, so I think that was God's kindness to me for that season. By the end of it, I thought, do I want to carry on in science and have less time for this? Or do I want to go full time in church and have more time for this? And that's when I made the, I suppose, the shift. But I think, yeah, the big change was being a Christian. And then it's just where do I best fit as a Christian in, in God's work? So you clearly spent a lot of time on campuses in the university setting, both at Cambridge and then in York. And you've subsequently been back uh, to campuses to uh, for missions and those sorts of things. Uh, I mean, obviously, in lockdown, everything's different. But pre-lockdown and post-lockdown, how do campuses look now compared to your experience? And uh, what are what are the what are the pros as well as the cons? Yeah, for the last I don't know ten years or so, I've had the opportunity to be involved in events weeks, showing the gospel on campus. It's been really good for me as a Christian just to spend a whole week talking to people. You know, what do you believe? And I think people don't know. I think, I don't know, I can't really remember what they thought when I was a student, but certainly nowadays people just don't know. And even the most basic questions. I remember someone saying to me, imagine you met someone on a train and you said, excuse me, do you know where this train is going? And I actually have once had that experience where I asked somebody that and they looked at me as if to say, what, you don't know? And I did because I got on the wrong one, but... <laughs> but but can you imagine, like, that would be your, your life? Do you know where this is going? Oh, not really. No, no idea. Oh, well, do you know where this train came from? No. You know, wh what are we doing on this train? To be honest, mate, I've got no idea. I mean, these are 
basic questions about rail travel, but they're even more fundamental questions about life. And you just realise that for the, I think, the vast majority of students, they just don't know the answers to those. And it's just a blessing we take for granted as a Christian. You know, I know what I'm doing in the world. I know where the future is. I know what my life is for. And, um, yeah, it it always wakes me up to realise there is this vacuum. It's not just that people have... I mean, I suppose at some level, spiritually, people have rejected Jesus, but we've rejected our creator. But people are largely ignorant about Jesus. They just don't know even the basic things that are in the Bible. And when they hear about them, they're often quite interested So I expect everyone to be ultra cynical. But in fact, people are just looking, they're interested, they're curious. And I guess even more so this year, you know, with the the pandemic, people are thinking, what is life for? Because this isn't any good. What's it about? Mm. Um, Yeah, so it's it's good for me. I don't know about for them, but it helps me to just realise it's great to be a Christian in ways that I just forget about because they're normal to us. Do you think, is it your experience that people are and will be asking more questions because of uh, COVID and lockdown? Um, I think some people are. I mean, so at our church, we've had, amazingly, we've had a few people come to faith in the last few months. I mean, ministry has been a bit rubbish because we can't meet easily or when we do meet, we have to sit miles apart and we can't sing and etc. I mean, it's... Which is often the way anyway in an Anglican church. But, uh, <laughs> and I can say that, you know, being an Anglican, but that's not, that's <laughs> not really normal or a particularly healthy way to do ministry, is it? Um, but I, I think... It's a testimony to God's mercy that some people have um, have come. I mean, there's one ho- housemate of a member of our church has started coming regularly. And she said, I've had a lot of time to think in lockdown. And I'm asking myself these questions about what life is about. And I was, I don't know. And I've come along. Um, another, we had a woman who came to faith just before lockdown started. She came to our church once. Um, actually, it's quite a funny story because she said to her teenage son, he's 14, she found us online, um, Grace Church Greenwich. We we meet just in a university building. We don't have a um, a church building. And so she kind of wondered, are they a cult or are they okay? So she wasn't quite sure. It's a perfectly legitimate question to ask, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. And so she'd just come to faith. She wanted to find a church. She found us on the internet. She says to her 14-year-old son, if I'm not back within an hour, call me. <laughs> anyway, she comes to the service. And it was once a month we used to have a question time after the service that so went on a bit longer. And during this question time, this phone kept ringing and basically it was her increasingly distraught son thinking, they are a cult, they've taken mum. And we, you know, we look back at it now and we laugh. But um, she came and then in May, sort of three months into lockdown, suddenly she starts being joined on the sofa on Zoom by her husband and he comes to faith. And it was wonderful in the autumn when lockdown sort of lifted briefly and we could meet physically to actually... We'd seen him on Zoom, but never actually met and discovered that he's new in Christ. So some people are turning to the Lord Jesus in this time. I guess other people are angry with God and cursing him for it. But some people are turning. Yeah, yeah. I'm not hearing much anger. I'm hearing despair, but I'm not so much hearing rage. I wonder if it's part of that uh, expression. I can't remember who said it about about I don't believe in God, but I miss him. People don't even believe in him enough to be angry with him. Do you have any reflections on on what this lockdown and what COVID means. Because I remember early on, there was talk from Christians particularly about maybe this is a call for the nation to repent or for churches to repent or some people should repent for something. And it's it's not entirely clear who should be repenting of what, even though we sort of know anecdotally uh, what repentance looks like. Can you pick your way through uh, 
this kind of response of repentance and is it useful? Yeah, I, I think it is useful, but we just have to be really careful. So that passage in Luke chapter 13, where um, Pilate, Pontius Pilate um, massacres some Jewish worshippers and then a tower collapses and kills 18 people. And people ask Jesus about it. And he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse than all the others because they suffered in this way? And then he says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And I think that's been a real help to me, that passage, because Jesus is saying it absolutely is not the case that if you lined everyone up with the most evil person on the left and the most virtuous person on the right, um, that would not correspond to the line of who suffered the most, who suffered the least. It's, mm. it's, it's not a sort of, it's not karma like in Hinduism. You know, God doesn't mm. pay people back um, in that sort of one-to-one way. But it is a sign that there's something desperately wrong with the world. And so I'm not supposed to think God must have it in particularly for the UK because we topped 100,000 deaths or, you know, and God's a bit more pleased with South Korea because they fought the pandemic better or something. I don't think we're supposed to infer like that but if it causes us to think there's something wrong this we're not living in paradise you know this is this is a world under God's judgment that that's a good thing and I I guess looking at and people have done some comparisons haven't they with past pandemics and how the nations responded and we ought to be there ought to be mass prayer and Lord have mercy on us and and please deliver us from this and instead we think well let's hope the biologists can deliver us and, you know, we should be grateful for biologists and that's a gift of God that we have medical science and, and we've got a, um, a vaccine and so on. But there ought to be repentance. I think it's it's like a... Actually, I'm preaching at the moment on Revelation, the book of Revelation, and we just looked at the trumpets, which are pretty pretty terrifying. I mean, in the, the plague in um, Revelation kills a third of people. So I think coronavirus is 0.14%. So this is this is a lot worse, and um, it's terrifying. We C.S. Lewis's phrase that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a God a, a deaf world, and we realise that he plagiarised it because it's really God's trumpet. I mean, that's the point of the trumpets. They're they're saying wake up because it's not final judgment. It's only a third. Um, the, these are not judgments that affect everyone, but they're a wake up call. And I was just going to share with you because I'm excited about it. This this is my insight into Revelation, which I hadn't understood before. You get all these terrible things happen. And at the end of chapter nine, we read the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or uh, worshipping demons or etc. So it looks like it's been a failure. God's tried to wake everyone up and no one repents. But I always stopped reading then. Of course, you know, you've always got to read things in context. And I should have read the next chapter. Stupid. Um, You read the next chapter and it's all about the church bearing witness and speaking about the gospel. And at the end of chapter 11, um, people give glory to the God of heaven, chapter 11, verse 13. So I think what Revelation is saying, that trouble coming on the world by itself does not cause people to repent. But trouble coming on the world, combined with Christians holding out their hope of um, of forgiveness and um, and of salvation, the combination does make people repent. So I think that just tells me we got the trouble, now we need the gospel. Let's be bold, because you know, the two together is, is the recipe for people turning to the Lord.
I guess one of the one of your hats is Cornhill, and therefore you're training people to do exactly that to go out into the world. What do what do people tend to arrive at Cornhill thinking, and what what are the one or two lessons where they probably need to learn quite fast? Are, are there any kind of rules of thumb that you you find on new new recruits? Well, one of the distinctives of the course, I guess, is we try to give people most of the teaching is Bible books. That isn't the only thing people need when we need church history and we need theology and so on, but. But the majority of what we do is Bible books and just to try and increase biblical literacy because the Bible interprets the Bible and the better you know it, the better you can teach it. So, I mean, that's especially true of the book of Revelation because all the things that we think are weird in Revelation actually come from Daniel or Zechariah or Isaiah or Ezekiel. And it's just we don't know those books very well. So I think, you know, um, familiarity with what the Bible actually says is a huge help. I think the other big lesson for me is that the Bible already has a message and each passage of the Bible already has a message. So it's not like I get a doctrine or a fact from a Bible passage and then I have to try and think, what am I going to do with this? You know, how would this fact help people? How would this doctrine impact people? Because in the Bible, it's already there with a message and an implication and an intention. So guy called David Helm, who um, is a pastor in Chicago and also does some training of pastors. He says that expository preaching is saying what the Bible says for the purpose for which it said it in the way that it said it. And I find that really helpful because what the Bible says, I mean, we get some doctrines and some facts from the Bible, but what the Bible says for the purpose for which it said it, you know, there was a reason why Jesus gave to his servant John this revelation to write to these churches in Turkey. He had a, he had a reason. And there's a, um, Peter had a reason to write to um, the Christians in 1 Peter. And Isaiah had a reason to preach to his hearers and so on. So I don't have to kind of, I don't have to make the Bible relevant. I just have to tune into it so I can hear what it wants to say or what the Holy Spirit wants to say to me through it. And I think that's a, that's a real help to, to, to see that the sermon is already there in the passage if I keep looking. It's not something I do with the text. It's something I discover from the text. And there's always that pressure as well to feel like I, I'm performing. I have to I have to inject life into it because obviously these dry and dusty words are not uh, going to be terribly compelling. And actually, if we just sort of get out of the way, uh, then it's quite amazing what, what happens, isn't it? Yeah. And it's I mean, in a way, you don't want to have too much imagination as a preacher because... You know, I could say I don't mean you have to be boring, and you no, can't stick to your guns. Come on, that's that's fine. <laughs> yeah, all the ideas are already there, and even the illustrations are there. I mean, you don't have to think, oh, how could I illustrate the idea that um, God is warning the world of His judgment? Well, maybe you could think of Him sounding seven trumpets, and <laughs> one of the trumpets opens a bottomless pit out of which come creatures that look like locusts crossed with scorpions. And I mean, you know, you couldn't be more interesting than this. I mean, oddly enough, I- I've just preached on Revelation uh, last Sunday at the time of recording. And um, I had exactly that experience of thinking to the church in Ephesus, there are people who are working hard, but they've forgotten their first love. And what could be a better illustration of that than Mary and Martha and Mary sitting at Jesus's feet and Martha running around getting generally furious? Um, and actually, it's all there. The Bible not just interprets the Bible, but it illuminates it. It, it illustrates uh, the Bible. And you've got you've got that extraordinary allegorical uh, picture language of Revelation. And you've got the earthy stories of the gospel. And, segue, 
uh, you also have the astonishing histories of one and two kings. Um, <laughs> now I mentioned game. that. Yes, very good. I mentioned that because uh, that is what you will be uh, hel helping us with, uh, God willing, in the coming uh, Keswick Convention, uh, the School of Biblical Studies stream on one and two kings. And just going back to what you were saying about Revelation, actually all of these themes are there. The pictures and the images are there, but they tend to be buried in books that we don't look at. Do we have a bit of a problem whereby we do tend to preach the greatest hits, the plum passages, uh, the famous parables, and we don't actually uh, benefit from the sum total of scripture, the full, uh, the full array of scripture? Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure that's true. I mean, I think we have bits of the Bible we're scared of, probably as preachers, and we don't get in it. And I, I mean, I'll be honest, I'm pretty scared of Revelation. Um, but they, all of the Bible gets easier when you know it better. It really does. And I think I'd encourage people to make a study of the same book over quite a long time. So One and Two Kings, I think I started it in my own quiet times. And then we did it in small groups at a previous church. And then having done it in small groups, I thought, oh, I kind of get a bit of a feel for it. I'd like to preach some of it. And then I've now preached through the whole thing over about two and a half years. Um, I mean, not only doing that, but we do one, a bit of One and Two Kings, then something else, then back to One and Two Kings. Um, and now, whenever I get the chance and I get invited to speak somewhere else, I say, can I speak on One and Two Kings? It's become a bit of a joke in the Cornhill office. Well, so I'm doing a church weekend away and they go, on Elijah, by any chance? And I say, well, funny, <laughs> funny you should say that. But then it becomes, the more you get to know it, the, the more it yields its treasures, I think. And, you know, I... I think that's true of any book of the Bible. Things that I've, you know, I didn't know Job very well and I was asked to teach on a day conference on Job and so had to start studying it. And as I studied it, it started to make more sense and it made a bit of sense when I taught on it for a day, but I quite like to go back to it. So I think don't be too scared and start having a go and it, it does get easier and then it begins to become wonderful. You talked about um, sort of private devotions or quiet times there. What, what do they look like for you, especially if you do decide to launch yourself into a book where you think do you know what I'm finally going to get to grips with this book or that book what, what sort of habits are you encouraging and, and I suspect this has waxed and waned in your own life and uh, uh, spiritual disciplines private prayer is a spiritual battle because Satan doesn't want us to call to our father um, but it's really wonderful and good for us when we do so I think habits are good and discipline is good um, maybe we need not I mean, I think Jim Packer has the image of not just eating spiritually, but digesting spiritually. And I guess this would depend on your circumstance, but I do a lot of eating. You know, I'm, I teach at the college and at the moment we're doing Exodus on Thursdays and doing Revelation on Fridays. We're doing our small groups at church on Genesis on Wednesdays. There's, there's lots of bits of the Bible that um, I eat, but do I digest any of them? And so for me, the challenge is just to slow down and go over again things I learned a you know, I, in passing, I understood it, but have I been through it with my Heavenly Father personally? Mm. And I think revisiting stuff. So if you heard a good sermon on Sunday, why not on Monday go over the passage again? Now you understand it and go through it in prayer, prayerfully, phrase by phrase. Or if you got home groups on Wednesdays, why not on Tuesday go through the passage you're going to look at on Wednesday and then reflect on it on Thursday? So I, I just think rather than... I mean, it's good to eat... And it's good to read the whole of the scriptures and have some sort of plan to do that over the years. But also it's good to digest. And the great, the great thing about digesting is some of the, the hard head scratching work has been done already by your pastor on Sunday. And 
he's helped you understand it. So now you get it, but now we can have all the enjoyment of the digesting. Mm. What resources would you suggest people use? What do you recommend to people in your church in terms of digesting beyond just reading the passage itself which it has to be said is a pretty good start and i think <laughs> a lot, again a lot of it is not rocket science just read what it says and think about it um but what, what about resources or any any recommendations yeah and we do people do, do different things at church so some people are trying to do a bible in a year plan and i think that can be great to do with others because then when you get stuck if you know you've got to watch that group for a few other people who are doing the same passages on the same days, you can say, gosh, I was really stuck by numbers. What did you make of it? Or that, that helps. Some people do that. Some people use explore notes, I think are good, where you get a little bit to read and a few questions and a, a, little, a little bit of a steer if there's tricky bits. Um, and I think just to, to pray through passages. So it's like Augustine's Confessions. You know, it's a work of theology, but it's all addressed in the second person to God. That's quite a good way to do theology, I think. So we're not just talking about God to each other, but we're talking to God. Lord, you have told me this. And you said this, and I found it really hard that you said that. So help me to understand your your mind. Or, uh, Lord, you said this, and it made me uncomfortable because it exposed me, and I'm sorry. And actually to use, having understood a passage, then to go through it in prayer, almost like a Bible study between you and your Heavenly Father, I think is a, a real help. That's really helpful. Thank you. Well, before we wrap up, let's just uh, dig back into one and two kings. Again, neglected probably, uh, and we we might not have heard many sermons on one or two kings. What are we What are we missing out on? I, I mean, I really really enjoy it, and it's got some famous things in it that you know. So, I mean, King Solomon, his um, wealth, his wisdom, his worship, his wives. There's four W's for you, but I mean, he's the richest, wisest man of history and then becomes the most stupid man of history. Um, he's the one who builds the temple, which is amazing, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Um, and um, the arrival of the Queen of Sheba, maybe you know the tune that they always do in, in coronations. And it, I think the story of the arrival of the Queen of Sheba is the first occurrence in the English language of lots of phrases that we know really well. So when she arrives, we're told it took her breath away. I think that's probably the first time anyone ever said that. And she said, I've seen it with my own eyes. And then she says, I wasn't told the half of it. So I, I quite like that. The three, three well-known English phrases all come from um, that chapter. Um, the stories of Elijah and Elisha are my favourite bit. And I think this is what we're going to do on, in Keswick, although I haven't quite decided. Because we won't do all of one and two kings. That's too much. But Elijah and Elisha, I call the superheroes. I mean, if you were to make a Marvel franchise, it's ready to go. You know, the, the scripts that were written and it would be a fantastic one. They do more miracles between them than anywhere else in the Bible, I think, besides Jesus. And you realise in the way that God set up history that Elijah is like John the Baptist. And you remember he even gets mistaken for him. And if Elijah is John the Baptist, then Elisha is the one who comes after John the Baptist. Because <laughs> Elijah passes on to Elijah. Sorry, Elijah passes on to Elisha. John the Baptist hands over to Jesus. And you start thinking, oh, is there a correspondence here? And then you discover that there is, and it works at every point. So where does Elijah hand over to Elisha? Oh, at the Jordan River. Where does John the Baptist hand over to Jesus? At the Jordan River. What kind of miracles does Elisha do when he turns up? Well, he multiplies breads to feed a crowd that's too big for the amount of bread they start with and has leftovers. Sounds a bit familiar. And um, he raises from the dead a, um, a, a, um, a boy who's died. 
um, and and so on and so on. I mean, there's, it's not Elisha does the same stuff that Jesus does, and he's even got the same name because the name Elisha in Hebrew means God saves. And you remember yeah. Mary and Joseph called their son Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. So Elisha is a kind of, I mean, he's a real person and he's not he's not Jesus, but he kind of prefigures Jesus. God set up history so there's a Jesus lookalike that comes hundreds of years beforehand. And I think once you see that, it makes it a really exciting book because it's we get to know the Lord Jesus in this kind of preview. I love that about it. Um, I think one of the reasons people don't like it is because, or it seems depressing because it ends in disaster. So the, the shape of one and two kings is basically one long downward spiral. So in, in Solomon's day, things are brilliant and then they just get worse. And every chapter, they pretty much get worse. So it sounds depressing, but it's also full of God's grace. So even as things are going wrong and the wheels are coming off, um, there's little threads that point us to the fact that God's got a plan to bless them, to save them, to forgive them. There's hope in the future. And I think once you go hunting for that thread of hope, it's actually not depressing. It's a, I would summarise it in that verse from Romans where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And you see that, I think. Yeah, it's, it's a great book. And I mean, don't wait for Keswick. Start reading it now because it's got loads of stuff in it that you'll love. But I'm really looking forward to getting into it at Keswick. Well, we look forward to hearing you speak on that psalm as well as your material on One and Two Kings. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Jan. You can, of course, find out more about the Keswick Convention at keswickministries.org. And why not keep up to date with all the developments by following Keswick Ministries on Twitter and on Facebook. And then hopefully you will see what's happening and what's coming up. Thanks very much for listening and we will speak to you next time.